This is a message from our sponsor. I'd like to introduce you to Publica by IAS, the award-winning CTV ad server trusted by some of the biggest streaming services and smart TV manufacturers globally. Publica helps a growing number of leading AVOD and FAST services to power the programmatic ad break decisioning via products including a unified auction, server-side ad insertion, and a demand-agnostic ad server built from the ground up around streaming. Head to getpublica.com to find out how they help CTV publishers to grow their advertising revenues and provide streaming audiences with linear-like TV ad break experiences. Welcome to the Marcus Extra Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by Eric Franchi and our special guest, Lisa Uchneider from IAS, the CEO of IAS. Lisa, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Ari. Thanks, Eric. Great to be here. Before we get started, a couple of uh, housekeeping. First, if you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple, you probably just heard an advertisement from Publica, uh, which is owned by IAS. And I just want to assure you that is a coincidence. We had Lisa booked uh, five weeks ago, and uh, we are not paid to play. They are advertising and editorial are totally separate. Secondly, uh, call for startups. So uh, I put this on Twitter, but if you are an early stage ad tech or martech startup, I want to hear from you. I want to get you on the show. We're doing special segments for early stage, meaning under 50 employees, pre-A round. Uh, Just email me and you'll get on the show. It's easy. No money, no problem. So go ahead and do that. All right. Now on to the interesting part. So Lisa, everyone knows, well, first of all, last time you and I met, we were in a boxing ring together. (laughs) (laughs) Ari, I was trying to remember, by the way, we can make a plug for Publica, go Publica, (laughs) but I was trying to remember that is so funny. You know, life is pre and post pandemic, so that is definitely (laughs) pre pandemic, but I completely forgot that the last time we saw each other was in a boxing ring. Yes, and Hold it was up. a very, very Hold much up. a zero interest rate phenomenon that you had an ad tech panel inside a boxing ring. Where was this? Why were you inside of a boxing ring? Who hit who first? It was one of the hold co's, right? That it was some of it. I, maybe the drum was the drum involved oh, with the it somehow. Drum, that's right. Good memory. The drum yeah. was involved, and I just remember. It was very close to the Hudson River downtown. <laughs> All I remember is like the the idea of me boxing is so far away that I think I may have injured myself getting through the ropes just to get onto an ad tech panel. So right. I'm and pretty I, far I away from realize, boxing shape. I, I didn't realize when I, you know, heard the title of the panel, it was boxing and duke it out. But when I showed up, I did not realize we were literally getting in a boxing ring. Well, but, luckily, uh, we left unscathed. That's right. So everyone knows IS, right? It's one of the leading companies in the industry. But tell us, you know, what's the new IS? Like, what? how do you talk about it nowadays? Sure. So IS, uh, we're a leading global measurement and optimization company. For many of you who've known IS over the years, uh, we provide core verification solutions, both for advertisers and publishers. And we're extending the verification solutions to beyond verification and offering solutions like contextual targeting. Uh, We're getting into the CTV space with our acquisition of Publica. And as marketers are 
shifting more and more from brand marketing to performance marketing, that's exactly where we're going to, is helping marketers find higher quality media that leads to higher ROI, higher uh, outputs for them. Okay, that, that's, a, that's a great pitch. Um, so we've been doing verification of various forms, or you've been doing it and your competitors for many years. Is it making advertising better? Like if you really zoomed out, uh, is advertising, digital advertising better than it was 10 years ago? I would say that marketers have become much more sophisticated in how they think about their marketing strategies, how they think about removing all of those layers to get to ROI, their demand for greater transparency uh, when it comes to media quality, when it comes to programmatic buying. So yes, I would say that it has helped and improved digital advertising. And I would argue too, just the overall digital ecosystem. Do CMOs feel that way? Like if you, I always feel like I get lots of negative vibes from the press about CMOs, don't trust digital, they're still fraud, they're still all this bad stuff. Do you think that um, that's just concentrating on the bad news or are CMOs starting to gain confidence that this is a healthy channel? Yeah, but when you take a look at the data, the money talks. So mm -hmm. digital advertising as a marketplace, I believe it's about $500 billion in total, continues to grow, especially in areas like social platforms, right? User adoption of the social platforms is through the roof. Same thing, the shift from linear TV. I mean, my kids in my house don't even know what cutting the cord is. The user adoption rate, I'm look at you, you too, Ari. The user adoption rate of um, streaming TV is at an all-time high. And as I'd like to say, marketers go where the users are, and that's where users are spending an enormous amount of time, especially during the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic. Social platforms, connected TV, retail media networks, they're spending a lot of time shopping online. And again, it's represented in the overall market share of digital advertising, which is so surpassed, not even just linear TV, but all mediums. So why do we keep hearing the bad headlines? Is it like just what? easier like that um, there's still rampant fraud in digital advertising or that, you know, we just this week, there was an enormous amount of news about made for advertising sites still being a big problem? Yeah. So I don't want to paint a picture that digital advertising, you know, declare it's 100 percent accurate, 100 percent pure, 100 percent you know, high, perfect quality, it's a journey. And it's a journey as the introduction of AIML, as greater sophistication of technology. I would also say just the whole explosion of user-generated content, highly dynamic, highly unpredictable, short-form video, it's a whole new medium. It's a whole new journey for marketers. And Mar, we're partnering very closely with marketers on this journey just to help them, again, connect with consumers and be able to deliver the right message to the right consumer uh, and help them drive higher ROI. What are your conversations like with marketers? Like what, when you as an executive meet, you know, a CMO of a major customer of yours, give us like an inside view about what you guys talk about. So I spent a lot of time with marketers, and uh, it's one of my favorite things to do in my role. And marketers, in many ways, when you look at 
what marketers were doing 50 years ago, 20 years ago today, the goals are the same, right? So despite the constant evolution and change all around us with technology and how consumers are spending their time and where they're spending their time, marketers, they just want to promote their product. They want to sell more product. They want to connect with consumers, capture their attention, and again, get the best bang for their buck when they invest in digital advertising. And that is our conversation. Sounds really simple, but CMO, what are your overarching goals? How can IAS help you reach those goals? How can we help you find the higher quality media to lead to higher ROI? The other thing that I hear a lot lately from the marketers, uh, and it brings me back to even my days at Amazon, is there's a lot of data that they are sifting through and processing. And there are questions around data. What do I do with my data? How do I prioritize my data? How do I think about my data strategy? Again, at the end of the day, to sell more product and drive higher ROI. I'm amazed. It's very similar conversations as it was 10 years ago. What has changed is the landscape and the unpredictable nature of user-generated content. This is, wasn't something I was originally going to ask about, but you know, you're talking a lot about sort of optimization and getting the right results. Um, your competitor, Double Verify, just bought an optimization company, and I'm seeing a little pattern here. You know, how do you think about optimization, not just targeting, but optimization as part of your future? Yeah, so the way we think about optimization, great question, it's all in transparency. So another conversation I like to have with marketers is they just want transparency in where they're making their investments in digital advertising. They want to take the black box out of things like programmatic advertising investments or the black box out of CTV programmatic. And I guess we're working closely with the marketers to make it a more transparent experience for them. A good example is Publica. I know we were touting Publica earlier. Uh, being the sponsor of this podcast. The stars were aligned today for me, Ari. <laughs> Thank but, you for the I.O. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but with Publica, we acquired Publica shortly after taking IS Public two years ago. And Publica was such an important strategic acquisition for us for a couple of reasons. Prior to Publica, IES were heavy buy sides. So we have over 2,000 advertiser customers, the majority of them are Fortune 500 global brands. Think of brands like Nestle, Coke, GlaxoSmithKline, Verizon. I could go on and on. And what Publica brings to TV, to the table, not the TV, the table, is heavy sell side, right? So brings both massive amounts of programmatic CTV inventory, but e equally as interesting, lots of differentiated data that we're able to marry up with IES's data. So when I sit with marketers and I ask marketers, what will it take for you to move more of your linear TV dollars into programmatic CTV? What are the obstacles in front of you to get you there with CTV? They give two responses. The number one consistently is I want similar transparency to what I get on linear TV. If I want to run a 30-second spot, let's say on the Today Show, I know exactly when my ad runs, what it runs adjacent to, I know it's a Today Show, NBC Universal, yada, yada, yada. But typically, 
when the same advertiser runs on programmatic CTV, the data they get is by device and app. That's it. They don't know genre, category, channel, show. And by marrying up the public data and the IES buy side data, we're starting to provide transparency so that marketers don't feel like they're in the dark when they're investing in programmatic CTV. So, so you're saying you're starting to provide. Is that is that an offering that's in the market currently? Yes, it is. If I am a CTV buyer using whoever, the trade desk, whatever, uh, and I'm buying on public uh, publishers, I can get an enhanced report of some kind from IAS? Yes, you can. The second obstacle, and it is tied at the end of the day to optimization when you hear from marketers on CTV, is frequency capping. So when I talk to marketers and even just all of us in terms of frequency capping and the experience in CTV today, we're getting the same ad served to us over and over. And nine times out of 10, it's not even the right ad. And so with Publica and the technology and assets that we bring, we're um, able to offer through our SSAI stitching an ability to stitch the creative real time in the stream so that it is starting to tackle that frequency capping issue. That's just two examples of the steps we're taking to provide additional transparency to the marketer. If you could solve the frequency capping issue in CTV, you'll get a Nobel Prize probably. I know, Ari, I'd call it a day, wouldn't I? <laughs> that would be it. You're done. So I wanted to ask you about your relationship with X, Twitter. I'm having a hard time calling it X. Um, so yes, uh, you we can do it. X. Uh, you announced uh, that IAS was going to do pre-bid um, protection, brand safety, on X. And that really got me scratching my head how that would work. Is that live currently or is that a, a, an announcement of something that's going to come? And tell us roughly how it works. Yeah, sure. So we were thrilled to announce a few weeks ago that X selected IAS as uh, an exclusive partner to offer pre-bid brand safety and suitability on the X platform for all of their marketers uh, for a year. The back half of this year, the plans are beta, then GA. Uh, so now engineering teams are heads down in integrating and gearing up for a beta with a handful of advertisers. The way it will initially work is X shares with us files. We score the files. We send the files back to them. It's a first step, again, of a journey, but it's an important step for marketers to feel confident that when they're running their ads on X, that's adjacent to brand safe and brand suitable content. So effectively, it's going to be in batch. So you're, you, you get a bunch of tweets, you're going to score them. This is hate speech. This is inappropriate, whatever. And then those scorers, Twitter will have to act, excuse me, X will actually implement that in their algorithm so that your ad isn't shown next to the IS scored ads. Is that Correct. Kind of, and everything yeah. is built um, to GARM standards. But again, it's the first step of a journey. We've been running our multimedia classification technology. It's called Total Media Quality or TMQ in TikTok for quite some time where we are able to classify real time every impression within the live stream of TikTok. Uh, the tech is totally cool, um, but frame by frame, second by second, we're classifying video, image, audio, text. Within the stream, according to the GARM standards, we can identify things like brands, celebrities, and we're ahead of our product roadmap with that product. 
We are now with TikTok in over 30 markets on track to hit 40 markets by year end and overnight. Uh, and I was actually, I actually had a 6 a.m. call with our data science team in Paris this morning talking about this. Rock on. We went from four languages. We now offer the product in over 90 languages. So we are rocking it in TikTok. And, uh, and then we have also launched this similar product in YouTube with 30 languages. That's awesome. Um, maybe one, one question on X and then I have a, a sure. related you know, sort of, you know, metrics question. So what, with what you just said, with the work you're doing with TikTok, do you envision having a, you know, as close to real-time capability with, with X as, as can be? Because um, this current solution, I think it sounds great. And with the algorithm, it's, you know, it's not a chronological feed. So one would expect that, um, you know, super important and viral tweets can be you know served to users hours or a day later, and thus you know the technology can can work there. But the nature of X is that it's real time and things are things are flying. Like, could you imagine a world where you're you know sort of like doing this in near real time? Yeah. So we'll follow X's lead in terms of the next steps with the evolution of the product. But our product, Total Media Quality, which is global, scalable, portable, running live. In the live stream of TikTok today, in over 30 markets, over 90 languages, and I would argue more complex because it's video, image, audio, text, highly granular, more granular than our competitors, backed by MLAI, the technology's there. That's awesome. And I do um, think that that is a big reason why X selected IES is because of the sophistication of the technology that we're running in TikTok, the incredible marketer adoption rate we're seeing, and, and just phenomenal feedback. And everything we build is to scale. And the fact that our data science team leveraged OpenAI to unlock the languages from four to over 90 languages in 24 hours with high accuracy rate is just an illustration of how sophisticated the tech is. And the tech gets smarter over time. That's incredible. So if I think about IIS and from a sort of like marketplace perspective, you've talked a lot about quality and that's, you know, sort of the, as I think about, you know, the history of the company, you know, started with quality and then, you know, in parallel, um, it's about metrics. You know, we had the, the viewability epoch um, maybe a decade or ago or so that really helped accelerate, you know, the growth of IS and companies like it. Is there a, you know, sort of new metric that you're finding in your conversations with marketers and agencies, you know, that they're all sort of like glomming onto, or is it still very much about, about viewability? Uh, great question. So I would say that viewability is table stakes, fraud detection, table stakes, Marketers still have a really high bar in terms of the accuracy rate that we're able to deliver and that they demand for both viewability and fraud detection, and also really important. But they are totally and completely leaning into brand safety and brand suitability as our world continues to lean into video, short-form video, sight sound motion, uh, the unpredictability of user-generated video, the technology and the demands of the technology, they are much more sophisticated, much more. And 
I would also say our marketers, even being at IES, I've been, I've been at IES four and a half years, especially over the last like two and a half years, the marketers, they have become so sophisticated when it comes to defining their brand safety and suitability strategy. It's at the C level and, you know, brand equity and brand reputation and protecting that brand equity is at an all time high. Do you get a lot of asks around attention? Uh, we do. I think attention is very important. I think it's one metric in the metrics of outputs. We announced a really fantastic partnership with Lumen, combining our data with Lumen's eye tracking data. We're on track back half of this year to launch a pre-bid attention metric. But with the marketers and attention, it's one slice. It is not, I, I think, I actually think there's a lot of hype on attention right now. And I, I'm more focused on how do we leverage our, just the depth and breadth of our differentiated data real time, layer it on top of our marketers data to help them drive higher ROI. That's interesting what you said about attention. That might be a turn into the title of the podcast. <laughs> attention is overhyped. So I want to go through a couple of, I don't want to call them controversies, but I would say things that people say about your sector um, and get your reaction. Um, uh, verification is bad for news sites. So news sites are our friends. Publishers are our friends. Our job, and we have a robust publisher business, and our job is to help all publishers, especially the news sites, drive higher yield and optimization. I'll give you one very quick example of how we really make a concerted effort to partner with the news sites. When COVID hit March of 2020 in the U.S., I remember the exact day we started working from home. That is when we launched our context control product uh, with the trade desk. And that's also when I remember the week. It was the week of March 13th when the marketers and the agencies, everyone was scrambling. Do I pull all my digital advertising do I re-message it, put it back out, 24-7 COVID news cycle? How do we handle this? And right in the middle of it, we launched very sophisticated technology that was not a pure block all COVID news. It was a classification technology where our tech reads the page, reads the news site, and we can classify semantic and, and sentiment. Being able to classify emotion on a text on a page is highly sophisticated. So we rolled it out, adoption rate went through the roof, and we simultaneously started cranking out research and white papers saying, hey, marketers, here are a bunch of best practices, how running your ads adjacent to COVID news. It could be about hero news. It could be about getting better educated in support of the news sites. Okay. Um, good answer. Okay. The second sort of controversial point or is the belief that on some of the walled gardens where, where uh, the verification companies don't have direct access to what's happening, that the it's sort of a rubber stamp. That like if someone – and this came up just a couple weeks ago when, the, when Adalytics published the report that YouTube ads were playing in non-viewable areas or muted or things like that and then – I don't remember if, you, if IS particularly or if it was your competitor, but there was generally this defense of YouTube 
and critics online would say things like, how do you know? You aren't even, you know, you don't have your tag on the page. How do you know? that? How can you verify in that case? Um, so what would you say to that criticism? Yeah, so with the GVP um, news, we focused on the data and the facts, right? And we thought it was the right thing to do to publish the factual data of what we were seeing with the GVP coverage. And we did it. We did it on behalf of our marketers. We did it was the right thing to do. And we received overwhelmingly positive response uh, from the marketers just saying, thank you. Like you're being very factual, IS. That's your role as an independent third-party player. So that's my response to GVP. Last, one of my favorite topics, actually. Um, publishers say that they should be paid for the data you use pre-bid. Um, and this is a kind of a European thing in particular. The belief that um, you're, you're selling category data and pre-bid data based on scraping their sites and for, they, own, they should own that data in some form and be compensated. I don't know if there's an actual lawsuit going on or if they're just making noise about it. What's IAS's point of view on that? Yeah, so on that one, we do process a lot of data we have differentiated data. We fully support the publisher community, the marketer community, and we'll continue to leverage the data to help marketers drive higher ROI and to help publishers drive higher yield. Is there a lawsuit going on just factually? I don't remember if there's an actual lawsuit or if it's just complaints. I'm not going to comment on any okay. lawsuit, but not with IAS. Okay, got it. This was awesome. We're going to take a quick break and then come back with the news of the week, which is, you know, not coincidentally a lot about quality issues. So we should have an interesting conversation. Hey, this is Tom Webster from Sounds Profitable. As a fellow friend of Markitecture, I hope you've been able to enjoy some of the great content and interviews that my partner, Brian Barletta, has been producing here about ad tech and the audio space. Brian and I are 100% focused on growing podcasting and digital audio through research, advisory services, and our own unmissable private events, which are all made possible with the support of our 140 partners from publishers to ad tech providers. But you don't need to be a sounds profitable partner to stay plugged into the future of audio. We publish two weekly newsletters and a daily news brief called The Download that promise to keep you educated, informed, and even entertained about the world of podcasting. And of course, it's all available as a podcast. All of our content is ad-free thanks to partner support, and we won't use your emails for anything other than sending you the news. So I hope you'll join us as we set a course for the future of audio at soundsprofitable.com. All right, we're back. And let's see, I don't even know where to start. MFA Mania. So um, I, I feel like we had something to do with this because we covered the MFA stuff pretty in-depth in last week's pod. And uh, and then there was that horrible Digiday article saying that MFAs were, weren't really that bad. And then um, Group M has announced they're removing MFA from all their inclusion lists, um, which is pretty big news given the size of Group M. And then on the other side of things, an Israeli ad tech company called Intango Media, which I'm not that familiar with, um, acquired an MFA site called Rain uh, for $10 million. Um, so there's some money in MFA, apparently. Who wants to jump in here? I'm not really even sure how to how to frame the conversation. 
Uh, Lisa, why don't you tell us what yeah, your customer so point of view on MFA is? Um, there has been a lot of chatter on MFA uh, recently. And the one other uh, data point I don't think you cited, Ari, was the recent ANA study that found okay. advertisers' waste. They were saying, I think it was 23% of programmatic ad dollars from MFA sites, which is significant, yep. 23%. That's an area where we are focused on. And we've uh, recently identified 16 signals uh, that enable us to determine whether or not a site is an MFA site. A few examples here, these signals include add to content ratio, add density, like the total number of ads, add refresh rate. Um, and then also we consider uh, the source of traffic coming to the site. So it is an area that we are hearing more and more from marketers. IS, you know, take a look at this, and we are leaning into it, again, uh, with the purpose of helping marketers find higher quality media. Do you think that you'll allow your customers to uh, choose to avoid MFA or not on their own, or will you bundle it with your other quality scores? We will maintain our role as an independent third-party player. Right. Eric, like, one of the things that is going on here that people don't really want to talk about is that the traffic to MFA sites is often from legitimate sites. Uh, so everyone's complicit here. I think uh, Terry Kwaja posted something about the pot and kettle being black in this situation. So you go to a legit site, you see those ads like, uh, you won't believe what happened to the celebrity. You click on it, and you're going to an MFA site that then has ads that are competing with the original site. That That's where the, a lot of the traffic comes from. Um, Eric, what, any uh, thoughts on this as a former ad network guy? Thank you for calling me a former ad network guy. Former. <laughs> Only happens once an episode. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it's a real issue, right? Because this originates with the publisher. The publisher needs you know, to have revenue in order to stand up a business and have a sustainable business. One of the, you know, at least you know, sort of on, on, a, on the web, one of the most reliable and substantial uh, forms of revenue has been, you know, those boxes that allow for, you know, that sort of, you know, kind of highly clickbait um, and engaging material to be uh, delivered. And all of these sites pay on a click or on an engagement because they're able to have super high click-through rates and then serve all these ads on the on the site. So, you know, to me, it's interesting because it goes to, you know, the whole economics of um, the publishers. Like if the publishers right. had better ad formats better ability to monetize, um, they, I don't think they would want this stuff necessarily on their site and it would, you know, make a major dent in the, or to your point, right, the traffic source that goes to them. So to me, I think it goes back to, there needs to be, I think, more innovation and, you know, just like better stuff that publishers can use to monetize, whether that's video, whether that's better ad formats, whether that's, you know, just like better PMPs. Uh, I think you attack it from the, from the supply side to, to your point. I think it's crazy that this stuff is still going on. It's absolutely crazy. Like, how long have we all been talking about this? Yeah. And the problem, maybe it's just a, a, a PR thing and a, and a news cycle thing, but it seems like the problem's getting worse. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, putting it on the blacklist or getting it out of the inclusion list um, is certainly a big step. You know, if the money dries up, basically, if the, if the revenue per page on an ad-supported site, MFA site, goes down... They have less money to pay for the clicks 
that generate that, which means the rates on these, uh, you know, performance, you know, native ad networks will go down. Um, exactly. Yeah. Which means so publishers will make less money. <laughs> yeah, there needs to be a one-two here, right? There needs to be like, you know, real focus on these inclusion lists. Um, and I think there's companies that are, you know, doing really good work there and they need to sort of be doubled down and supported. And then, you know, n- number two, attacking it at, at, at its core and um, making sure that their incentives for this ultimately are removed or greatly reduced. Right. Right. And if you look at um, what Outbrain and Taboola have been investing in, they're trying to go up market. They're trying to do video. They're trying to do brand advertising from their base. and uh, But still a large portion of their ads are effectively bought by folks who are also selling ads. I don't want to say they're bought by MFA sites, but I will say if you think about the av- who the originator of the advertisement is, it's not a brand in most cases. Correct. All right, let's talk about the latest analytics report. So analytics uh, came out with a new report. It was covered in the New York Times, um, alleging sort of two things. Um, the first thing being that non-children ads were being seen on YouTube on children's content, clearly children's content. Um, and secondly, that in some cases, data was leaking to ad tech providers from those ads um, it wasn't, uh, I'm not clear if that's entirely based on clicking the ads or if the data was being leaked on ad serving. Um, that, uh, that's kind of a technical detail. And I, I'm actually supposed to talk with um, the analytics folks uh, shortly, maybe on this pod in the future. Um, and then as a second shoe to drop, IPG paused its PMAX campaigns. PMAX is Google's automated performance system because they were worried about this issue about children's data exposure. I don't know if that's a permanent pause or a temporary pause. And Google has been denying this pretty vehemently, uh, multiple blog posts, multiple tweets. And then uh, Christoph from Analytics spent $10 on Google ads and showed his ads immediately on children's content. Um, so it's a pretty compelling story that there's something going on here. Lisa, you want to give it a shot? Yeah. So on this one, um, I can't speak to analytics data or the accuracy of the data. But, well, what I will speak to is that marketers, put analytics aside, marketers, as they become more sophisticated about brand safety and suitability and their needs, their requests become more sophisticated. So things like don't want to run adjacent ever their brands to any form of content that's geared for children. I mean, I could give you a whole list of new areas that marketers, and they're very clear in terms of why it's important for their brand, why it's important for their uh, digital advertising strategies. And we continue to lean in to create new segments for them. I think in the first half of this year, we created 16 new segments, uh, one of them related to children's content. So I don't want to really touch the Adelaide's report. All I know is that we're listening very carefully and closely to our marketers and continue to invest and innovate to help them navigate this increasingly complex landscape. One thing I I forgot to add is that uh, Ad Exchanger did some really good reporting on this, um, so I'd recommend reading their coverage. And what's interesting is there's a nuance here that the first defense is, well, what if adults are watching the children's content? Like, that's totally different. And that's true. However, there was a um, some sort of agreement, like an FTC agreement w- between Google 
and the government. And Susan Wojcicki, when she was running it, she promised at the time that they would treat children's content as children no matter who was watching it. So that was some very useful context about how we got here from an agreement several years ago. Uh, this sounds like a pretty messy situation, um, and um, I'm interested to see how it all plays out. Eric, any uh, anything you want to add here? Yeah, this this is messy, and uh, it feels to me that you know, at, at the most fundamental level, it's a violation of of COPA. Or COPA I don't know how it's how yeah. it's pronounced. It feels like that's uh, a responsibility of YouTube to just like ensure that doesn't happen. And you know, maybe there's verification that's an additional layer. But it feels like from a, you know, just like sheer, like fundamental first principles perspective, it's a black and white decision on, you know, on the, on the part of YouTube. Yeah. So, wrong on that? so COPA would be present in two ways. Well, first would be if they were using user data of under 13 people in the US, under 16 in Europe to target the ads. And they claim they're not doing that. And, but then there's a second part, which is let's say you're an adult oriented advertiser like Jeep or something. You show your ad to a child when you didn't want to. And then they click on it and they go to your web page and suddenly you have all They're kinds of stuff on your web page collecting data about them. Now you, you the advertiser, might be uh, in a compromised position. Exactly, exactly. So if what Susan said you know, when she was the CEO was how they're handling this, content is a proxy for user data, like they should just enforce that full stop. Right. And maybe things have just grown so crazy. I, I mean, YouTube, it's still like the amount of videos that get uploaded, the amount of new channels that get uploaded. I, I realize this is a beast to wrap your your arms around, but feels like that fundamental should be the thing that they focus on in terms of solving this. Yeah. When you upload a video to YouTube, they, they force you to say, this is for children, this is not for children. Um, but who knows what compliance is like on that. So it's the, it's the creator's responsibility. Uh, partially. I mean, you'd think, I'm sure... Google can uh, detect the ch content uh, pretty well. So we'll see. I think this story is still playing out. Yeah. Just to um, pivot a bit off of that, but just this will provide color in terms of the level of sophistication of requests we're getting from marketers. I mean, what I said before about children's content, if it's not appropriate for the brand, absolutely. They want 100% accuracy that their brand never runs adjacent to children's content. But in terms of what I hear more about from marketers is things, you know, recently things like IES, how can your technology help with the impact of social media on teenagers' mental health? Can your technology detect when a teenager is interacting with social media if there's any impact to their mental health? So things like, can you detect bullying on social media? Can you? And it's something that our data science team, we're starting to explore. I mean, it's such a massive issue, and we will take one slice of it and tackle it, because mental health is just ginormous and so important. And, you know, just start with one thread of it. Can our technology classify bullying within the live feed of a social platform? So right after you get the Nobel Prize for eliminating frequency cap problems, you'll get a Nobel Prize for understanding teenagers. Correct, Ari. 
Um, all right, last one. Uh, Media Math finally uh, being bought by Infilion for $22 million. Uh, the Infilion, if you're not super familiar with that brand, uh, is the renamed combination of Truex and Gimbal. Um, which are both companies that you may you may be scratching your head on also, but they're you know they were scaled ad tech niche players who came together. So um, I think that the immediate question is going to be what's next. You know you have twenty two million dollars for effectively um, a uh, stalled vehicle would be probably the best way to put it. No no clients no volume no cash flow. Um, should be interesting to see what happens there. Uh, Eric, are you still recused from saying anything? Your your mum is the word here. Yeah, mostly uh, can't comment. Um, but uh, I think Truex is a really um, it's a good asset. Uh, it is that um, you know I think some folks might have forgotten about, uh, but it unlocks uh, really high quality um, CTV uh, supply across like premium publishers, and um, has a you know neat you know sort of like um, a value exchange model. That's an asset I think a lot of people forgot. But I think it's still quite quite an interesting business, and uh, I think there's a lot of potential with uh, enabling stuff like that programmatically. What does Truex do exactly? It's like they have creative formats in video players, and, and they ask survey questions and stuff like that. Uh, will you watch this video in exchange for X amount of um, time? Putting uh, you know, sort of like free content, and um, but it was. Remember, it was originally a standalone company, and I think it was acquired by Fox and then sold to Disney. Fact right. check me on on all. No, stuff. I think so, you got that right. Yeah, wow. yeah. So it was it was used by really premium um, media companies um, as a you know sort of like ultra premium layer at the at the top of the stack. Um, and um, yeah, from what I understand, it's still a still a you know sort of like de decent sized business um so i think there's interesting you know sort of assets that Amphilion has and then you know there's just the media mass media math business and you know the the fact that it was a sort of you know kind of very sophisticated um dsp for you know sort of big brands that had you know this this you know various use cases so i would expect that this could this could end up being really positive uh lisa i'll ask you a question just as a ceo of a public company which is um let's say you're on the debtor list that media math didn't pay the bills. Do you turn them back on because they have new ownership and went through bankruptcy, or do you hold a grudge and and not not give them any credit? Do you really think I'm going to answer that question? <laughs> a public CEO. All all I'll say. All right, come on. Uh, it was worth a shot. All I'll say is, um, yeah, I wish MediaMap well, and our business didn't miss a beat. I'll just leave it at that. Well said. Okay, that's a great place to end it. So this was an awesome conversation. Lisa, This, uh, thanks for being here. We uh, learned a lot about your business. Very interesting stuff. All right. Thank you, Ari. Thank you, Eric. Thanks so much. Great conversation. Thank Eric, day. always a pleasure. Yeah. Bye. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.